0: Thanks, Paul.
1: Good morning. We can read along together. Today I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version, uh, 1989. It's about the conversion of Saul, so let's uh, follow along together. Meanwhile Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found anyone who belonged in the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply claimed, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man, named, uh, for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At the moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done in your, in your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring the name of before Gentiles, kings, and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the, for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you in your way here, he has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Amen.
0: Would you join with me, Uh, I'd encourage us to pray as you remember it, the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, I want to begin by a, talking about a guy by the name of Jan Grabenski. Uh, Jan was a Polish worker uh, in, in, in Poland, of course, when in 1998, 1988, he suffered a massive injury in a rail yard accident. And this is significant. Uh, doctors told his wife to prepare for the worst, but his wife Gertrude stuck by her husband and cared for him, visiting him day by day, year after year, for 19 years. And after 19 years, Jan wakes up. In fact, this is a famous story in Poland. I met a Polish girl last night at the, the share Gala, and, and she, I told her, I, I'm telling a, a story about a Polish guy. She says, Everyone in Poland knows about Jan Grabenski. But imagine, 19 years go by, but it's like a day for Jan Grabenski. And in that long span of time, the whole world had turned upside down. The Cold War is, is now over. Uh, communism fell throughout Europe. Poland is now a democracy with an open border. And, and when he woke up, there was a whole different George Bush in the White House. Imagine <laughs> Talk about surreal. His wife said, Yan was amazed to see the colorful streets, the goods. He says the world is prettier now. <laughs> Talk about someone's life just getting rocked. His whole, his whole world changed in what must have felt like an instant. And we're nearing the end uh, of our series on the book of Acts. We're gonna wrap it up next Sunday, but we've been looking at how how following Jesus turns the whole world upside down. And and today, we're gonna talk about what happens when God rocks someone's world. You know, we'll we'll talk about the kind of transformational event that that happens when God decides to grab hold of a person and rock a life and entirely change their direction. I, I kind of wonder this morning, how many of us still believe that God is in the world rocking business? I mean, how many, is that something God still does? I wonder if, if many of us, at least some of us, would have somebody in our brains, somebody maybe we would think about maybe in a moment of weakness or something like that, but somebody who comes to our mind as a person who seems to be beyond the capacity of God to change, a person who we kind of think is unreachable by the hand and power of God. Ironically for me, as I was preparing this, I, I thought of that one person and, and, and even more funny, as I stopped in at, at my local coffee shop this morning, and that person said to me, yeah, he's given up praying for me because he doesn't believe God can change me. Those are the words that came out of my friend's mouth, who is my guy. I thought, God has such a sense of humor. <laughs> but it's, think of that person who we may just because of their disposition towards the world. We think, maybe God has written off, and, and maybe we've written him off. Well, in our text this morning, <laughs> Saul, who would be Paul would absolutely fit in that category. We read in Acts 9 verse 1, it says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Think about it. To the early Jewish Christians, Saul would have been like a a commander of ISIS today, (laughs) like someone that we would think of in the terrorist category. Saul was a hate-filled, violent person who was so convinced, so convinced that he was right and and everyone else was wrong that he would stop at nothing, including arresting and and killing Christians, innocent people, to force his religious views, to protect his Jewish faith. And and we know from Acts 7 that, that Saul was an influential leader, Jewish leader, who gave approval for the public and brutal execution of Stephen uh, one of the, the, the most respected leaders in the church. Stephen's crime was he believed that Jesus was the Christ and that he'd risen from the dead, and we're told that Saul was there as they're stoning him to death, and he's giving thumbs up to that execution. Acts 8.3 says that Paul, Saul I should say began to destroy the church That was his mission, destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. The the, the picture of Saul that we have here in in, in Acts is he's not a nice guy. And and I'm betting that the, the disciples and the early church had Saul at the top of their list of people God could not change, someone who was unreachable by the hand of God, And then we read in Acts chapter 9. One day God steps in. God somehow gets in a world-rocking mood and I I don't know why it happens. I just know that it does. God sovereignly moves in and he targets somebody's heart and he rocks their world and he just turns their whole life upside down. And it happens to to Paul. We see that a, a Paul and a group of his henchmen, henchwomen, that doesn't work either, hench people, his hench people, accomplices, they're heading toward the city of Damascus. And there's this, this little growing community uh, of Jesus' followers who uh, Paul has decided he wants to wipe out. And so he, he's gone to the high priest, he's asked for, for papers. For, for written authority so that he can extradite these Jesus followers and, and bring them back to, to Jerusalem where he will try them and, 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 and imprison them. So Paul's on this long, dusty road from Damascus to Jerusalem. It's about 160, 70 kilometers. And we're told that along the way, as they near Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And, and this light's so bright, one version says it was brighter than the sun, that it knocks Saul to the ground, and he's blinded by the light. And he's in the dust, and he's just lying there helplessly. You can imagine. Right after that, there's a voice that, that asks Paul this penetrating question. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And, and, and Paul's, I mean, totally caught off guard. He doesn't know what's going on, and he responds with, who are you? And the voice responds with these shocking words, I am Jesus. By the way, this sounds like a strange occurrence that never happens to anybody. Can I tell you, this is going on all the time in the Muslim world today. People are having dreams and encounters with, and they're hearing this kind of voice saying, who are you? And they're, they're experiencing this voice, I am Jesus. So it still happens today, by the way. But it's impossible for us to imagine what these words would have meant to Saul. These words, I am Jesus, how that would have impacted him. The moment he hears the voice of the resurrected Jesus, he would remember that he had just days before given approval for for Stephen to be killed because Stephen claimed that Jesus was resurrected. In that moment, Paul's entire theology implodes. I mean, his whole way of of looking at the world is is, is rocked. His whole cause for, for living is like snuffed out in a moment. His mission, gone. Talk about feeling exposed and ashamed. No idea what to say, no idea what to do. And Then Jesus gives him three little commands. Get up and go into the city of Damascus and await instructions. And with those those three directives, Jesus withdraws his presence from Saul and, and leaves him on the ground, blinded and confused. Now, he's got a decision to make. He's, he's heard, just had his whole world tur- turned upside down. His world's been rocked. What should he do? He's a, a tough guy. Does he kind of stand up and, and shake his fist at heaven and says, is that all you got? Bring it on, right? Does he do that? He, or, or does he just kind of shrug this whole experience off as as indigestion, you know, or something, you know, a, a, a sort of a psychedelic dream that he was having, some surreal thing that he just shrugs off. Thinking about that, I, 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 I was remembering uh, a roommate of mine in university, a guy by the name of Jeff, Jeff Nishikawa. Um, Jeff and I have lost touch. I, I kind of wonder where he is in the world, but, but Jeff uh, and, and I uh, rented a house with two other guys, and uh, it was, it was kind of a very cool experience, this old century, old home, brick little tiny place. We were just kind of living all over each other. And uh, these guys were really bright, and we'd have these massive, lengthy discussions about the meaning of life and faith. And I was the only Christian among them. And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where, where you're kind of like the, the, the smartest and brightest, brightest and wittiest guy in the group. This was not one of those moments for me. Uh, for, for three years, I feel like I, I journeyed with these guys and we'd have these you know, sometimes exhausting discussions and I often felt so unmatched as I tried to humbly share my belief in the risen Christ. I, I remember one night, Jeff and I were out at some function and we were getting home really, really late and as we're walking home, the, the conversation turned once again to God. And, and, and finally, at the, kind of the end of my wits here, I just said to him, I, I, I've told somebody about this before, but I said, Jeff, I'd I challenge you just to pray this prayer. Pray, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. God, if you're real, show yourself to me. And, and I left that, that, that night with that, and I expected the next morning for Jeff to say, I prayed it, and, and I met God. <laughs> And it was like silence for the next probably three weeks. And about three weeks later, I finally, in a, in a hopefully an appropriate moment, I, I, I said to Jeff, Jeff, did you ever pray that prayer? He says, Darwin, I did. I prayed that prayer. And he says, it's interesting. That night that I prayed that prayer, I had a dream. And in my dream, I was visited by Jesus. And it was like I'm, uh, Jesus was there. And he was really, really real. And I said, Jeff, what do you do with that? He said, I don't know. He shrugged it off, he shrugged it off. It just did not jive with his view of the world. And I still pray for my friend Jeff that somehow God would get through that resistance that Jesus visited my friend, I feel like. He had a visitation from Jesus and he shrugged it off. And Paul could have done that, he could have, I mean he was a smart, smart dude. And he could have, could have chalked it up to, to all kinds of things but he doesn't do that. The text says he gets up, he does precisely the first thing that Jesus told him him to do. Second, he goes into the city. He's gotta be led there because he's blind. And then he does the third thing Jesus asked him to do. He waits for instructions. And, And we're told he doesn't just wait. This is fascinating to me. I think it's kind of key. Paul refuses to eat or drink for three days, thinking about what happened to him and thinking about the future. I mean, Ananias says later, uh, or he is told by God later that, that Paul is praying. Quite a significant response, and I'm, I'm going to cycle back to that, so, so put a little bookmark in your brain there. But there's another part of the story. In the same city of Damascus where Paul is now waiting, there is a Christ follower named Ananias. Ironically, he's probably on Paul's list of people who he was going to arrest when he came to Damascus, right? Because he's a Christ follower. So God comes to Ananias in verse 11. And he says, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named, from, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand on him to restore his sight. Gotta love this. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Who needs Google when you got God, right? Like, just pay attention to the directions, people. So how does Ananias respond to these clearly God-given directions? Well, he freaks out, (laughs) which makes sense. Ananias would have known about Saul. He, He would have known who Paul is, why he came to Damascus. He had probably attended prayer meetings in this little Jesus community in Damascus where they prayed that God would save them from Saul, God did save them from Saul. So Ananias starts kind of listing all these reasons why this is not a good idea, God, to go and bring this message to Paul. Have you ever thought that you're the only one to to disagree with God? I mean, not so. And while Ananias is giving God his his reasons for saying no, God is saying, "Uh uh-uh, you go. He says, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Commentators tell us that those two verses kind of foreshadow the rest of Paul's life, his whole story. If you read on an Acts, we find that, that Paul becomes the primary missionary to the Gentiles, and also to the Jews. I, I said last week that, that Paul really was the most Jewish of guys, but he's actually a foreigner. He was born in Tarsus. So he, he was probably well-suited for that mission to the Gentiles. But, but he also shares the gospel with, with kings and with government leaders, and you see him suffer greatly because of Christ's name. And Paul the persecutor would become Paul the persecuted. I, I don't know about you, but I'm really uncomfortable. I I gotta say, I really don't like the line, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. There's often been a part of me that has been fearful that if I fully surrender my life to Christ, he'd make a similar pronouncement like that over me. (laughs) I will show Derwin how he must suffer for my name. It's like... But but it it doesn't sound like grace to me. It it sounds like karma. You know, Paul caused suffering, therefore he is going to suffer, right? It's like God saying, Paul is going to get what's coming to him. What do we do with that? The only thing is, is that Paul didn't see it that way. (laughs) I mean, Paul came to understand the upside-down nature of the gospel of Jesus Paul, who would go through unbelievable challenges and, and hardships in his fulfilling of this calling, he, he'd later come to say in Colossians, he, "To count it a privilege to suffer for Christ." In 2 Timothy: 1:8, Paul says, "Join with me in suffering for the gospel." He'd come to be called the apostle of the cross." And in Philippians 3.10, Paul writes, I want to know Christ and the power of his, his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Totally upside down to, to our way of thinking and approaching, approaching suffering and hardship. I, I, I wonder in some ways that if today we've bought into the idea that, that walking with God by by opening up our lives to Christ that we've somehow purchased some extra insurance and, and protection from, from trouble, right? I, I mean, I, I mean you, you know that you've maybe done that if, if when something bad happens in your life, you, you, you find yourself a little angry at God. I, I thought I was your child. Why did this happen? Why, why am I going through this difficulty? And in our Western world, especially, it's easy to buy into the belief that, that pain or loss or suffering is the worst thing that can happen to you. And, and Paul is saying that suffering is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Missing out on the gospel of Jesus Christ is the worst thing that can happen to you. Paul basically says this in Philippians 3.8. He says, I consider everything a loss, Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. You know, this morning I don't want to be in any way glib about the challenges that you're facing. Or the challenges that you have faced in your life or will face. But if we have Christ... We have enough. If we have Christ, we have hope. If we have Christ, we don't despair. I, I read about when the, the Apollo 13 mission you know, was going wrong, their flight was going off, and, and it looked like the fate of those three astronauts was going to be certain death. As portrayed in the, the Apollo 13 film that, that told that story. Uh, One observer, one NASA official said, this will be the worst disaster NASA has ever experienced. And and a NASA chief overheard that comment and he responded sharply, with all due respect, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. And when it seems like God has has somehow pronounced a a season of hardship over our lives, or, or when it seems like God has rocked us through, through difficult te- circumstances, it will be tempting for us to, to be, this will be the worst thing ever. And yet, if we see our lives through the eyes of faith, through the belief that all things work together for, the, the, th- for those who love him, we may say, this just may be our finest hour. Uh, one of my fans, uh, some, somebody that I really admire is not my fan, I'm his fan. I'd like to think he was my fan, but I don't think he ever knew me and he's dead now. So that opportunity's gone, but he's a good guy. And I'm sure he would like me if we had coffee. Um, author and, and priest Henry Nowen. In fact, I, I, uh, I find Henry Nowen's books to have been some of the most grounding works. He's a, he's a Catholic priest and, and uh, he has um, drawn me back to my faith, my Protestant Christian faith. and so. Don't close your ears to other voices in your life sometimes, right? But uh, Henry Nouwen experienced his fair share of suffering. Um, He, uh, through his ministry life, was plagued by depression. Uh, He he was a celibate priest, and so he was plagued by loneliness, a sense uh, of that often. And uh, in his latter days had uh, a battle that he lost to cancer. So he experienced his fair share of suffering. And he wrote this, he said, it would be just another illusion to believe that reaching out to God will free us from pain and suffering. Often, indeed, it will take us where we would rather not go, but we know that without going there, we will not find our life. In Paul's words, (laughs) Henry Nowen would say, The surpassing greatness of, of knowing Christ makes all my troubles seem like light and momentary troubles. Paul could say that. I pray for your grace for you to, to discover that perspective too. That the gospel of Jesus Christ would become our everything. Well, let's conclude the story. Ananias, despite his fear and his terror, he goes and he walks a few few blocks. He turns onto the street called Straight. He finds the house. He finds Paul. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth, and I think this is just kind of God-anointed language, Ananias says, Brother Saul. <laughs> what a thing for him to say there. Talk about grace. And Ananias says to, says to Paul, His blindness will be healed, and it was healed right while they were talking, Paul could now see. And then he says, Paul, you need to know that that God has chosen you. God, when when God rocked your world, he did so with sovereign intentionality. You know, he's gonna use you to be his chosen instrument. And Ananias kind of lays lays it all out, and at the end of their encounter, Paul asked to be baptized. It's just an unbelievable story. Can, Can you imagine... Ananias going back to this little Damascus church and saying to the church elders, Paul wants to be baptized? <laughs> I could say, nope, we're not touching that guy, right? I mean, can you imagine that? But, but Paul, the persecutor, the religious terrorist of the, the first century, makes his profession of faith in Jesus. He gets baptized, and coming out of the waters of baptism, he begins fellowshipping with the other believers that he had come there to kill. Must have been quite a day in church, Now, now, what's the point of all this? Why am I bringing this up? I, I want us to reflect on whether we really believe in our gut that God is still in the world rocking business. What is our faith level like? How many of us have a longer list, as opposed to a shorter list of people we're pretty sure God can't rock, and so we pretty don't. We we, like my friend accused me of this morning. He doesn't pray for me anymore. I'm a lost cause. I wonder whether some of us have have maybe drifted without even thinking about it into a sleepy kind of faith that just assumes that God can 't change a life anymore and maybe especially not ours. What would happen if every person in this place prayerfully committed to to say God rock our world, God rock, rock my friends and and do that to my family and, and and rock my school, rock this church, God. Rock our city, show yourself strong, God. Knock some people off course, turn some saws around. What would happen if by faith we believe that God could do all that and more? Think of the implications of that. Do you know how God usually does this, how this usually works in God's kingdom? It usually starts with a few people who are willing to pray, God, rock me first. Rock me first. I, I think that's what would characterized the, the early church. I mean, they devoted themselves to seeking God, to opening themselves up to the power of God by his spirit. And as a result, God poured out his his power upon thousands and upon thousands of lives that, that were rocked by him. So what I'm going to ask you to do, and, and you can say yes or no to this. It's it's between you and God uh, to begin praying daily a very simple prayer. God, I invite you to rock my world. You know, my 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 heart is wide open. I, I saw that scare that fear in the eyes of some dear soul. God, rock my world. You know, I I trust you and I know that that I have nothing to fear. You're you're free to rock my life. And and here's the second thing that I I would challenge you to do is when God shows up, when, when he does anything in terms of supernatural activity or God movement in your life, I'm gonna ask you to obey his instructions. Let me take you back to that bookmark I asked you to leave in your head. When Jesus interacted with Paul, Jesus gave him three things to do. Go, get up, go into the city, and wait. And, and Paul did exactly those things, simple though they were. But, but with meticulous obedience, Paul did exactly what Jesus asked him to do. Nothing less, nothing more. And, and, and thinking about this, I, I think that's a major reason that, that Paul, the one-time terrorist, would be, end up becoming the most impactful, one of the most impactful Christ followers of all time, because one day when Jesus asked him to do a, a couple little things, he did them. And he never stopped that pattern. Paul never got too mature or too seasoned or too smart to do anything less this whole Christian life than the, what Jesus whispered for him to do. And you know that we will never ever grow out of in our journey with God of the need that we have to respond with obedience to the voice of Jesus. Jesus. We never get so mature that we aren't just supposed to follow his simple instructions. Jesus taught us to cultivate this responsiveness to God in the Lord's prayer, what's been called the Lord's prayer. Thy will be done. It's a prayer we got to pray every day, folks. we got to pray that every single day. Thy will be done. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. I mean, Jesus, in one of his weakest moments in the garden, he prayed that, not my will, but but your will be done, right? And we pray this kind of prayer because the wisest among us have insisted for century after century that that kind of prayer is is that which opens us up to the very presence and power of God. As one author said, though, there's no greater expression of love to God than a freely submitted will. I like how Pastor Tony Evans put it. He said, let God rule your world if you want him to rock your world. Let God rule your world if you want him to rock your world. There are moments when I remember to pray that prayer. <laughs> They're not usually dramatic. It's often just kind of simple obedience, right? I, I, I love it when I do. And there are times when I don't want to pray it. There are times when I resist praying. I just want to do what I want to do but I'm learning that the more I follow Jesus, the more confidence I have that he actually knows best, like that he has a better plan for my life. I, I hear words like he spoke to Paul. You're my chosen instrument. And I, and I, 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 I think we, we think that's a, a word that's reserved for Paul. Do you know that, that God wants to speak that over your life? You're my chosen instrument. I have so much I wanna do through you. There's gonna be people that, that are only gonna be able to hear my voice or, or, or receive love through someone like you. You're my chosen instrument. But, but are we gonna follow the call? <laughs> are we actually gonna do what, what that, that call giver actually tells us to do? You know, there's a story that's been told about, uh, it's from Civil War days before the freedom uh, of the slaves about a northerner who went to a, a slave auction in the South and they were auctioning off a young black slave girl and he bid for her and won the auction. And as they walked away from the auction, the man turned to the girl and said, you're free, you're free to go. And with amazement, this, this, this girl, she says, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want to do? Yeah, he said. And to say whatever I want to say? Anything. And, and, and to be whatever I want to be? Uh-huh. And even to go where I want to go? Yes, he, he answered with a smile. You're free to go wherever you like. And she looked at him intently and said, then I will go with you. You're the kind of master I can give my life to. <laughs> Jesus is the kind of master that when we discover what he's really like, we can actually surrender our all to him. We can give our life. Uh, here's, the fo- here's the thing. We're all going to be slaves to something. <laughs> and, and if you've got to be a slave, you've you got to choose wisely who's going to be your master. And we can be driven by the world and, and all its riches, which we know where that leads or we can turn our lives over to the one who promises not just to free us and forgive us and to, 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 to release us from the past, but a, a Lord who's got such, such vision and hope and passion for your future. You see, it, it, Here's the thing, he's, he's a gentleman and, and he offers us a choice. C.S. Lewis wrote that the day, the day is coming when every soul will adopt one of two postures before God, either joyful surrender or defiant separation. One day, every person will say either, thy will be done or my will be done. And the reality is, to at least some degree, our hearts are always assuming one or the other of these two postures. From one moment to the next, we make choices. What will I do next? How will I treat this person? What will I do with this money? Where will I... Allow this temptation to lead me. The the, the heart that learns to say with Paul and with Jesus, thy will be done, your will be done, from one moment to the next, opens themselves up to the power of the universe. So I'm calling you this morning to pray this simple prayer. God, I invite you to rock my world. And I'm challenging you when he gives you any kind of instruction or direction, when there's a word or a whisper or any simple little thing that he's asking you to do, I'm asking you to just say, your will be done and do it. Music team, come on up and and would you bow your head with me and let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you are still, we believe this morning that you are still in the the business of of rocking lives. God, there is no one like even my friend who thinks he's a lost cause. There's no lost cause to you. You've given us a reminder like Saul. If if you can change Saul, you can change anyone. If you can change Saul, you can change us. God, we invite you to begin a, a whole new era of of world rocking in this church. Start with us, God, start with me. Would you do that, Lord? And God, we commit that we will do your bidding, we will respond to you in even small ways because we know that in the doing of it, eventually you'll entrust us with more and more. God, our our world needs your power. Lord, there's people in our community, the vulnerable, the lost, who need your touch, and, and we pray for your power to come upon us and, and, and on our church with great power. Oh, God. Now, think of those who are suffering right now who, who feel like uh, they're in a season of great difficulty. Would you remind them of your gospel? That if they have Christ, they have everything? But in the midst of it, I pray you'd speak over them your, with, with grace grace. Remind them that your grace is sufficient for them. And we pray with Paul that that you would indeed work it out for good and that we might not lose heart. We pray these things with great hope and encouragement in Jesus' name. Amen.